Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Welcome, you guys, to our Rare Disease Day webinar. We're calling this webinar Rare Squared, which is kind of a mouthful to say now that I'm trying to say it out loud. But a couple of patients and I have talked about this, about this idea of just like, yes, we're rare. We have ocular melanoma. We are part of a community of people who are like, it's literally a six in a million chance that you can get this. But then you have the people who are doubly rare because of whatever, maybe it's because their tumor recurred or because their tumor came back in a different area of their area of their body, like they metastasized. And then we have the people in the minority groups who are kind of just, whether they're diagnosed and have metastatic disease or not, they're kind of just the rare of the rare. So we're calling this the rare squared webinar because we are talking about rare diseases. And we just want to talk about a few of the aspects of uh, being a patient with ocular melanoma. And then of course, we're talking to a couple of physicians here who are going to um, just kind of weigh in on the topic of rare diseases and what we can do as a community to raise awareness and why that's important. So with me today, I have uh, Dr. Justin Moser from Honor Health Research Institute here in Scottsdale and Dr. Lauren A. Dalvin, who is an ocular oncologist uh, at the Medical Oncology Group of Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Let's go ahead and just, will we just uh, have you guys briefly introduce yourselves and just tell us a little about, um, I guess, just your general background as a person, and then we'll get started. Um, Dr. Moser, do you want to go first? Sure. So like Danae said, I'm Dr. Moser. I'm one of the medical oncologists here at Honor Health Research Institute in Scottsdale, and I lead our cutaneous oncology program. And as part of our um, clinical trial and research program here, we have a big focus on rare tumors. And one of those rare tumors that we have is uveal melanoma. And so we have a program dedicated specifically to uveal melanoma, both for managing patients after they're treated by the ophthalmologist, research programs, and then um, you know different clinical trial options and trying to find new drugs to treat, both to reduce the risk of recurrence of melanoma of the eye, as well as treat melanoma once it's spread. Um, a little fun fact about Lauren and I, we were actually interns together. So we actually met, God, 10 years ago now, we're old Lauren. Um, yeah, it was, was back in 2013. <laughs> so we actually met 10 years ago. We were, started our residency together on the overnight shift uh, on the wards of Mayo Clinic. So we have an eternal trauma bond from going through that experience. So Goodness, that's crazy. Lauren, um, what about you? I know we've had you briefly, or we've had you recently on the webinar, but go ahead and just for anyone who's new, um, just tell us a little about you and your background. Yeah, thank you so much. So I lead the ocular oncology service here at Mayo Clinic Rochester, and um, I've been on staff here since 2019. Just like Justin said, we've known each other a long time. Um, so yeah, our first night on call together, he brought me a caribou hot chocolate, which I will never forget. <laughs> Um, it made it so much more palatable, um, and he put all the types of chocolate sprinkles, so if you want to get to me, um, give me chocolate, it works, but um, I love what I do. Um, 
I really, in my training, was very drawn to the ocular oncology space and to rare diseases. And I am, I'm just so privileged to be able to have an impact on these patients. And, and I think this is really a space that both Justin and I feel um, needs some work, but really has a lot of potential growth for the future, especially with good collaborations. And it's awesome that so many of us from across the country and even across the world know each other and have the pleasure of doing things like this together. No, oh, I love that. And you made a, such a good point that the, the, that the collaboration, the research together, the kind of putting our heads together is really what brings answers. And um, that's obviously what we hope for as patients as well. So we're grateful that you guys are willing to do that. Um, so tell us, um, what is it like? And I guess before I, before I do this, if you're wondering, we are missing one person. Um, Dr. Afshar was going to pre-record and we are going to just excuse him for the moment. And we're going to catch him for a future, a future podcast. And we're going to talk a little more specifically about, um, rare diseases in minority groups. So just stay tuned for that. That will be coming. Um, I just have to keep working on scheduling. So, um, thanks for your patience. Sorry for the confusion. If anyone was looking for three people and didn't see a third, um, so um, I guess let's just go ahead and get started with our questions. Uh, Justin, can you tell us what is it like being a physician of people with rare diseases like ocular melanoma? Yeah, so, you know, being a physician that treats patients with rare diseases is, is really a privilege, right? Because you really have to develop trust with your patients and really develop a connection that you don't necessarily have to for more common diseases. And that's because we don't always have information, right? If you have more common types of cancers, and you come to my clinic, I can definitively tell you this is right and this is wrong. When you get to rare tumors, we just don't have that information. And so it really is more of a communication, more of a discussion, and really just kind of a trust saying, I think this is the best thing to do, but we don't always know because we don't always have that information. So it really is kind of a privilege where you can really get to know and develop stronger bonds with your patients. I think the other thing too is it's really an area where you can make tremendous benefit. You know, like Lauren mentioned, we both, <clears throat> when we were in residency, noticed or got involved with ocular oncology and realized this is actually a terrible disease. And it's sad that there are no options for this disease. And, and what that means is that there's a lot of things that we can do, right? There's a lot of progress that can be made. So um, especially now in the times where drug development and science mm -hmm. and all of these new technologies are really, you know, they've been taken off for a couple of years, but they're getting so much deeper and so much better. And even AI now being able to better understand these diseases and help guide treatment, it's really kind of an exciting time to be involved in trying to pull these new technologies and everything that's going on in this space to a rare patient population. No, oh, I love that. Um, Dr. Dalvin, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. It's really a privilege to be in this space. Um, it's interesting being the frontline person for this because I deal with rare diseases on a daily basis. Patients who are coming to me often have not heard of the disease that they have. Um, many people have not even ever considered the possibility that you could get cancer in your eye. And so I'm often giving news that really has this tremendous shock value. And, and there's often this pause and, and a moment of of understanding of, oh, is, do you mean that's a cancer? Is that what's happening? And, and then there's followed by, I didn't even know you could get cancer in your eye. So it's, it's the rare patient who's had a friend or a family member who sort of understands that this is possible. And it's the more common patient who's sort of totally floored that this is what we have to deal with. And so within the space of 
an hour long clinic visit, you're really taking somebody from a place of, oh, maybe I have some fluid in my eye or a retinal detachment all the way to, I have a cancer. And now we have to talk about how we're going to treat that and what comes next. So you're really there for a big defining moment of a patient's life. And and you start at that moment, then this very long relationship, as Justin said, you know, it's, it's not a quick in and out. I'm going to tell you exactly what we need to do because everything is very clear. This is really a long-term relationship. And I tell all of my patients at the beginning, you and I are going to be friends for a long time. And, and gosh, I really hope that I get to be friends with all of my patients for the next 15 years so that I can hopefully watch them not develop metastasis and not need to have treatment by someone like Justin and it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where you get attached and, and hopefully our patients then again, have that trust in us so that as we're guiding them through with the best evidence that we know that might be different on day one, when we meet them compared to five years later, when we're screening them, you know, they, they believe in us and they understand that we're giving them the best today in 2023 that we have. Oh, I think that's, that's so important. And, um, and I like, I like how you explained, like both of you, I feel like you, you kind of got into a little bit of, you know, why it's important to, to you to be a physician of someone with, um, or people with rare diseases like ocular melanoma. Um, but I, I just think it's, it's such, uh, I think it's a privilege for us as patients too, to have physicians like you guys who really are very, very dedicated to your patients, um, and to just really trying to to make improvements, whether it's, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or, you know, whatever it looks like, like, let's, let's just make progress together. Um, so why did you specifically get into ocular melanoma, Dr. Dalvin? Um, I know we kind of have briefly touched on this, but let's just touch on it again. Um, uh, just cause I want to, I want to like kind of emphasize how in the physician world, if you go into oncology, you don't typically pick this, <laughs> this is not the first thing you pick. Yeah, you and I have talked about this briefly before. Um, you know, I really felt drawn to this, and I, I sort of had several meant to be moments in my life. And, you know, the first of which really was that I felt that I was meant to do my training at, at Mayo. And I, I can't tell you what it was when I came here to interview. I, I always lament when I'm interviewing for residency these days that, that we haven't been doing them in person because I really had this tremendous feeling walking into this building. This is where I'm supposed to be. And then it just happened a medical school mentor from back in Ohio, where I had um, done my early schooling, said that I have to work with Jose Polito, who was here. And I really, really thought for sure I was going to be a vitro-retinal surgeon. And I was absolutely set on that probably since I was 18. I, like many of my patients, had no idea that ocular oncology was a field. This was not a space that had ever occurred to me. But in working with Jose Polito, who was not only a retina specialist, but then I found also an ocular oncologist, I really came to love this. And it became very clear to me pretty quickly that I was much more drawn to this rare disease space. I, I just felt that I could make a more um, a large, long lasting impact in this field. It wasn't something that was necessarily saturated with you know, 20 doctors in every city for every patient. This is something where maybe you only have one highly trained doctor in a state or even a couple of states. Um, and sort of that defining moment that we talked about on one of our other calls was when I was with Dr. Polito in clinic and we were seeing this young woman who was pregnant and diagnosed with uveal melanoma and was just 
devastated. I mean, imagine, you know, thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to see my child grow up? And she was very well educated. She sort of knew what this diagnosis meant. And Dr. Polito looked at me and looked at her and said to her, in 15 years from now, you're going to be seeing Dr. Dalvin and she's going to tell you you're cancer free. And, and I just knew at that moment, you know, I, I did, I wanted to be that person who was there for her. And I want to be that person who's there for all of my patients. And, and again, I just want, I, I want to see the future unfold where hopefully we can have that happy 15 year cancer free moment for everybody. No, I love that. And I think it's, you know, just as a random plug for rare diseases, um, as far as uveal melanoma goes, because there's so much research happening with it, it's, it's not the typical, oh, you get to the five-year cancer-free mark and you get to ring the bell, which I think can be, at least from a patient perspective, that can be kind of debilitating sometimes to see other people like go ring the cancer-free bell, because you know that you don't get to ring that for so much longer because we just don't have enough um, we don't have enough answers as to exactly when the risk point goes down definitively. Um, and anyway, but, but I hope that, I hope that you get to continue, um, seeing those patients. And I, I don't know if you're to that 15 year mark, I kind of guess you're not quite yet, but, um, I hope that you get to see that patient again when she hits that 15 year mark. Um, Justin, what about you? Um, I know you specifically work with a lot of different rare diseases in your clinic and the research Institute, but, um, how did you kind of happen across uveal melanoma? as a whole, like as a, as a medical oncologist? Yeah, great question. So, you know, when I was doing my, started my intern year in residency, I knew I wanted to do oncology. And so I reached out to a bunch of the oncologists really early on, even actually in the weeks before we started the clinical rotations. And I started meeting with medical oncologists to talk about research opportunities. And I met with a bunch of them and they were okay. And then I met with one of the new faculty members at Mayo at the time, Aaron Mansfield. He's phenomenal. And I was like, you know what? You're awesome. I want to work with you. And at the time he was doing half lung cancer and half melanoma. And the project he proposed was doing something on uveal melanoma, which I'd never heard of. So I kind of read up on that, looked into it and said, yeah, you're the person I want to work with. Let's do this project. And in doing that project, I really saw that, you know, this is a field that really needs help. And so that really kind of sparked my interest in uveal melanoma. Then, you know, two, three weeks later, I was on clinic with Lauren and she's like, oh, I want to do ophthalmology. And there's these things called eye tumors. And I was like, oh, interesting. I'm doing an eye tumor thing. And then through that friendship, it kind of propagated forward. Um, so, I, you know, by the time I left residency, I knew this was something I wanted to do. And then when I got to fellowship, I got there and I met with the melanoma team. And I said, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is uveal melanoma. And um, the team at the time told me, well, we can't do that unless you're at a place like MD Anderson. There's just not enough patients. You can't focus on that. And I don't like to be told no that well. And so I kind of just did it anyway and kind of pushed through. Um, and then when I ended my training and came, was looking for a job, one of the things I asked about was how about uveal melanoma? And when I interviewed here at Honor Health Research in Scottsdale, their response was, there really is no home for uveal melanoma in the state. It would be great if you could build a program. And so that was one of the many reasons that kind of drew me down here to help kind of start building this program. Oh, I love it. And I'm, I mean, just having lived in Arizona and currently living here, having you as my doctor, like I'm grateful that you're here um, because it, it does make it so much easier, you know, to be in a different area of the country and to have someone 
that is well-versed in the uveal melanoma research, who's up to date, you know, at ASCO, at all of these different seminars that happen in the cancer world uh, to, you know, just update on research and who also, I know you are into research yourself. Um, so grateful for both of you and for what you guys do. So thank you. Um, so let's talk a little about rare disease day specifically. So this is kind of a, like a, I guess, a newer day that was originally started by NORD, um, which is the National Organization for Rare Diseases. And um, they help to front our, our insight registry. So, you know, it, Rare Disease Day became something, I think, thanks to them and a combination of other rare disease uh, focused nonprofits. So why do you feel like as a doctor, Rare Disease Day is important, like a, a day as a day to spread awareness for something like ocular melanoma? Um, I guess I'll start with Justin. We'll just go back and forth like a ping pong ball. Yeah. So these, you know, days and patient organizations and all this stuff are hugely important because one of the big hurdles is to getting more information and better treatments for patients with rare diseases is when there's no collaboration, right? So very common tumors, one person can put up a shop, get enough patients and enough data to really generate something meaningful and help guide the community. With these rare tumors, no one site or location can generate enough data. So we really need these collaborations and that's through patients with the, you know, different registries and repositories like the Insight Registry that Cure Insight runs. Um, but it really, we really need these days and patient organizations to bring, um, to bring awareness to these rare diseases. Because when you get the awareness, when you have these rare disease days, when you get patients involved and you get people collaborating across the US, that's what you need in place in order to approach a company with a brand new drug that wants to take it for like, for example, into breast cancer and say, actually, there's really good data that this could be effective in uveal melanoma or whatever type of rare cancer. Will you let us try it there? But without that, the awareness of the disease with the collaborations, with the patient involvement and the patient organizations, you, you really get people to say yes but showing that there's this dedicated community and awareness to a rare disease really brings people to the table in terms of, um, you know, developing new technologies and new treatments in this space. Oh, I think that's such a good point. Um, Lauren, what about you? What would you say I, to that? You know, I agree with everything Justin said. I think another really important aspect of having a day like this is also spreading awareness to patients who may be affected someday. They may not know that they have a rare disease. Um, there's so much that you can do if you're aware, um, getting a dilated eye exam, if you have a nevus, having somebody take an image of that so that it can be followed. So we're going to know if it changes really early. Um, it's so, so important because um, I can't tell you how many patients I see who have just never had an eye exam because their vision is fine. They don't need glasses, so they don't think about doing a dilated eye exam necessarily as part of a general well adult physical exam. And so they have then some fluid from a tumor that's leaking that causes a vision decrease. And that's the first time they ever get an eye exam. And just to think how many patients we could catch when their melanoma is so much smaller if everybody got their eyes dilated. Oh, that's such a good point. Um, and I mean, we know it, it it's, it's such a challenge because I know that in my case and, and other people like with an anterior tumor, like a dilated eye exam still wouldn't quite have caught it really small, but it, you know, potentially 
there there's so much room for anyone else in that that sector who has a tumor further in the back or somewhere that is visible on a dilated eye exam that if it was the mainstream like standard of care that everyone just you know they go to the dentist two times a year they go to the eye doctor once a year you have a nevus you maybe you go two times a year like and so like there's just um there's definitely room for that kind of a call and i think that like both of you said the only way that happens is if we talk about it and social media is a huge way to talk about it um because it really it just makes ripple ripple effects across so many different sectors. Um, we're going to, we're going to hear from doctors who are going to be like, Oh, I didn't know about that, but, um, now I do because I saw this video or I saw this post. And then again, like you said, the patients who are not patients yet, but maybe will be in two, five, 10 years. And they remember something that they saw from an organization, like, um, like a cure insight or ocular melanoma foundation or cure OM, like any of the ones focused on ocular melanoma, um, and it really is such a, a powerful thing to come together and and have a day that we can just kind of I feel like drop the politics and just say, look, everyone, like let's talk about this. This is important. It's affecting people every single day. Like, forget the politics. Forget who's raised the most money or who you know whatever. Like, let's just focus on. We want people to be aware of this. We want the recognition. We want it to be in the spotlight. Um, so, I, I love that. I think that's such a good point. Um, Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and let's talk specifically about kind of patient care and, and potential obstacles. So we talked about how um, there's those people in our community who are kind of rare squared, who maybe they, they don't really fit the common demographic. And I think that that would be um, like children, that would be people of color, um, that would be people who are younger. So like, like myself, who are diagnosed under the age of 30 um, or, you know, somewhere in their 20s or their 30s, who they just don't really fit the mold of what the research shows us, you know, historically is the common demographic. Um, so what do you see as potential obstacles, um, Dr. Dalvin, when you treat someone who's one in one of those minority groups? Yeah, getting to diagnosis is, is often a challenge, especially young patients, I think, are one of my biggest demographics who probably never had to have an eye exam. So they're probably not caught until there's a problem. And, and children, especially, even when they have a vision problem, their brains are so adaptive that they're often not telling you they have an issue. So it's really, really especially challenging to catch those cases. And then it's also this level of, of doubt. So when you're getting screened by a pediatric ophthalmologist, a general ophthalmologist, an optometrist out in the community, when you don't fit that mold, you know, I've seen uveal melanoma as young as two years old, but the vast majority of people who might see one or two uveal melanomas in their entire career aren't going to look at a small child and think, gosh, that's what's happening. And same with people of color. Um, melanoma is so much less common overall in people who don't fit our typical fair-skinned, blue-eyed population. And so when you're not in that population, other things come to mind, especially if you have an atypical melanoma, which I've seen in patients of color that are somewhat necrotic and maybe causing a little bit of concomitant inflammation and pain. And so those patients often get put into this, oh, maybe you have a scleritis, an inflammatory type of condition, and maybe they're actually treated with anti-inflammatories for that condition for a while before it dawns on somebody that this could be a cancer. And so unfortunately, sometimes things go a little bit longer before they get to meet somebody like me to make that definitive diagnosis just due to these inherent biases. We have biases naturally for things that are common. And when things are uncommon, especially if they're uncommon and in a patient who's not your typical run of the mill for the uncommon diagnoses, it's so, so hard for people who don't do this every day to even 
think of that and think to refer that patient. Oh, I think that's such a good point. Um, thank you. Um, so Dr. Moser, I want to kind of touch on this, but in a little bit of a different way, because I know that obviously you don't deal with the initial diagnosis. You see people, see people after they've seen someone like, like Lauren, and they come to you because someone like Lauren says, you need to see a medical oncologist who knows about uveal melanoma and who can do scan protocol um, and just monitor you for whatever duration of time is appropriate. Um, so what do you see as some of these kind of minority, um, these obstacles for minority groups within, um, within your sector, I guess, or your sphere? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, like Lauren said, is the delayed diagnosis. You know, if you aren't aware that this is even a possibility, it's so hard to think about, oh, my eye, I'm having vision issues or I'm having eye pain and think that maybe it's an eye tumor when you don't know eye tumors exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's especially true in parts of the country where we have more minority populations because there's just less, you know, centers that are high volume for these rare diseases. So there's less doctors that have seen it before and have expertise. And, you know, the doctors aren't necessarily thinking about it as, you know, thoughtfully or as, as commonly as other places are. And I think, you know, once they get diagnosed, <clears throat> From my perspective, I think the biggest issue is, is where these people live, you know, in Arizona, our, you know, biggest minority population is the Native American population. And typically, they are on the reservations, which are on the kind of the periphery of the state or northern Arizona. And all of the health care in Arizona is pretty much centered around Tucson and Phoenix. So if you live in northern Arizona, there's limited healthcare systems and definitely limited complex healthcare systems that do rare tumors. And so it's the travel, you know, it's so much harder to see a rare disease specialist when you have to travel five hours and get a hotel room one way versus you live across the street. No, that's such a good point too. And, and I feel like we've talked with, um, I've talked with multiple patients, parents of, of children with ocular melanoma who have said that that's one of the hardest parts about this is finding someone who is both um, able to treat a pediatric patient and who's also close by is almost impossible. Like there's, there's a level of travel involved. Um, maybe not every single time for every single patient, but there's, I guess in our, in our population, there's some level of travel involved almost every time, whether it's because you need to travel for the medical oncologist and it's a few hours, and then you happen to have an ocular oncologist in town or vice versa. Um, I think that there's definitely that aspect of traveling. And I think, like you said, the people in um, these minority groups, whether they're children or just um, people who live in a different area of the state where it's just not as like much of a hot spot for medical centers, that they are kind of stuck having to travel. And that, that adds an extra burden to this diagnosis as a whole, um, which I think I, I guess I, I don't like traveling. <laughs> I don't like traveling for medical stuff. So like, I can't imagine having to do it every three months or every four weeks to get, you know, shots for your eye for Avastin. Um, and so I just, I have a ton of empathy for the people who that is their reality because of this diagnosis. Um, let's see. So, um, well, I guess this is, I guess, again, relevant to patient care. Um, how do you reassure a patient who has something like ocular melanoma that, um, they're going to receive good care in your practice or, you know, kind of, what do you focus on with those patients who maybe they're, they're really confused. They're really doubtful about like, well, do I even need to come and see you? Like, I don't have cancer anywhere else. I should be fine. Um, or maybe they don't want scans. Like, you know, just all of these different things can happen when you're interacting with a patient. So, um, I guess, um, Dr. Dalvin, how do you first like reassure those patients when you're giving them that first initial news? 
Yeah, this is this is all about trust. So, you know, for me, I, I am so lucky to be in a place where I don't have to have my medical decisions motivated by finances or politics or any of that. I just get to think about what is the right thing to do for the person in front of me. So I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you what your options are. I'm going to tell you what I think is probably best. And in some cases, I'm going to tell you that maybe there's not a right answer. And I think that's when it's the hardest is when there's not a definitive right answer and we really have to make a choice, but we make that choice together. And I, I want my patients to know that this is not a one-sided unilateral relationship. I'm happy to tell you what I would do if it were me. And I can um, you know, tell you those things very honestly and based on all of the evidence that I know, but only you can decide what's right for you. And I'm never going to push what I feel would be right for me onto somebody else. Um, I'll tell you if I think something is dangerous or unsafe, I'll tell you what I think is going to put your vision most at risk. I'll tell you what I think the follow-up is going to be and, and what the reality is going to be in an experience. Um, but patients have to know themselves. And I think being willing to listen to people is hugely important in, in this type of rare disease space, especially whereas Justin has said already, we don't always have definitive evidence on, on the best thing to do. Um, you know, the other thing is we tend to know each other. I know people across the country and different centers have different experiences with different types of treatments um, at Mayo. You know, we now have both plaque and proton radiation therapy. This has been a really hot topic for my patients recently. What's best? What's going to give me the best vision? And it's it's so hard to get into what the real evidence is and what really applies to every individual patient. But I absolutely have no problem telling people, okay, this is the center that's had the most experience with this. This is the center that's had the most experience with that. And, and I think being honest about all of that is, is just so important. Well, thank you. Um, Dr. Moser, what about you? Yeah, I agree. It's all about trust, you know, and it's about being open and honest about, you know, the information and what's going on. You know, like Lauren, <laughs> I'm thankful to be at a center where I, as long as I'm doing good work, no one questions how many patients I'm seeing or what I'm doing. You know, I've never heard about metrics in my job, which is great, which really allows me just to, you know, sit down and say, I'm going to do what's right for you. And that includes sending patients elsewhere, you know. Sometimes with these rare tumors, we just have to remind ourselves it's not about us. It's about the patients. And if the patient is going to gain comfort from traveling somewhere else to see someone else, that, that's okay. You know, so if my patients tell me I want a second opinion, I have no problem with that, right? Because you just got to put the ego aside and do what's right. Now, I will recommend who they see, right? Because if they're going to travel, I want them to see someone better than me. And so I will you know, recommend, you know, to see certain people around the U.S. who I think are great and have phenomenal programs. Um, but it's really just about being honest and building that relationship, um, just kind of like Lauren said. Thank you. I feel like, um, I guess I feel like this is important to highlight because uh, we have, we have a level of, um, I think just general distrust of the whole system after we have this diagnosis, because, you know, some people are misdiagnosed. Some people go through, you know, the years of monitoring and they're dealing with insurance, um, fighting against when and how they get their scans. Um, and so there's just, there's just this extra layer, I, I think, um, of 
maybe distrust of, of medicine as a whole, because you kind of feel like on some level it failed you. Um, even if, even if you didn't get diagnosed, you know, because maybe you only needed sunglasses and you never got an eye exam, but, but again, you know, somewhere along the line, it kind of feels like society, culture, whatever has kind of failed us as patients, because it's like, well, if we had this, this, and this in line, then we would have early detection and we don't have that yet. Um, and so it's, it can be, I think, really reassuring for patients to have doctors like you guys. So thank you for being the type of physicians that you are. Um, I guess as we've no, go oh, ahead. comment on that, I think the point you made is really true about distrust of the system, right? When you are one of six of a million people who get this rare thing, it's really hard to say, it's really hard to have trust and not have distrust when you've just kind of failed at the odds in the fact of getting this diagnosis, which is so rare to begin with. So it's definitely a hard thing to cope emotionally. And, you know, you want a doctor who understands that. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the future of rare diseases. And I know both of you are into research and you guys have a lot of, um, just a lot of research you've already done, a lot of research you're hoping to do in the, the sphere of ocular melanoma. So where do you see the rare disease landscape for ocular melanoma changing in the future? Um, and I guess specifically, let's talk about registries and biobanks, and we can make a plug again for the living library that you have going on at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Dalvin. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, really, I, I think that this space is going to change tremendously. And I genuinely believe that within the lifespan of my career, we're going to have good treatments for metastatic uveal melanoma. And, and we've seen it happening with the very first FDA approved treatment for metastatic disease. I think we're going to get better. And I think it's happening now. Um, but this is just the start. You know, we still have a long way to go. And so, I'm always looking toward what can I do and how can I contribute so that we do get to that place where, again, my patients are coming back at 15 years and we can be cured. Uh, so one of the things that I set up when I started my practice was the prospective ocular tumor study. And I collect clinical data from all of my patients whom I see in clinic and then patients who unfortunately have very large tumors that might require a nucleation uh, we ask if they're willing to have some of their tumor tissue come to our laboratory and we actually grow their tumors in our lab. And so we grow these three-dimensional tiny tumors called organoids and we have started characterizing them and we're able to do drug screening with them um, in, a, in a high throughput basis. So we can really take these teeny, teeny, tiny samples and at a, at a quick screen, we're going to be able now to test new drugs or drugs used for other diseases that might be applied toward uveal melanoma. And the vision for me is that we have all of these unique tumors from unique patients. They're different. We know from prognostic tests that you can have low risk, medium risk, or high risk for metastatic disease. And even within the high risk for metastatic disease group, they're not all the same. So our goal is to be able to actually distill out all of those different subtypes of tumors and be able to test a patient's tumor and not only give them a prognostic result of what their likelihood of metastasis is, but also say, if you get metastasis, these are the drugs that you're going to respond better to. And I really think that's a potential reality to have this personalized or precision medicine for our patients in the future. I think that's so important. And for anyone who wants more info on that, I just double checked what episode it is on our podcast. Um, if you search the I Believe podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast, 
um, the Apple Podcast app and Podbean. It's episode 55 and it's titled A Living Library with Uvia, for Uveal Melanoma with Dr. Lauren Dalvin. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that, highly recommend it. it she goes into a lot more detail about this uh, and the research that she's been doing. And uh, But I feel like you summed it up really well there. Um, so Dr. Moser, what about you? Um, what about like, let's talk, I guess, about the importance of registries and biobanks and how that can change the future. Yeah, so the registries and biobanks are absolutely the future. You know, one of the big things that's really limited our understanding of uveal melanoma so far is the fact that there is there were so few institutions until recently that actually collect data from uveal melanoma or collect samples. And if we don't have <clears throat> extra biopsy samples of patients with metastatic disease or tumors of the eye, we can't go back and analyze them and say, this is what actually defines the tumors. And if we don't know what defines the tumors, we don't know how to treat them. And so collectively getting the tissue in these biobanks and bioregistries and biorepositories, getting these samples together so we can actually go in and try to understand these tumors um, is really the future to know how to treat them. And one of the things that's been limiting so far, besides the lack of these biobanks and biorepositories, is the technology. You know, it used to be that to sequence a tumor, it was really costly. So we just did hotspots and maybe looked at 500 genes or 35 genes. Now we can, now we look at all the coding regions plus the RNA, but the technology is coming out there now where now we can look at the actual entire DNA of these tumors, both coding part of the DNA, the part of the DNA that makes proteins, and the non-coding part of the DNA, which we know has biological functions, it just doesn't make a protein. So we don't know exactly what that function is. And we can now look at single cell where you actually take a tissue, and instead of just taking a hunk of tissue and breaking it down and sequencing all in one and assuming the mixture of all the cells in that thing is going to represent the sample, we can actually break that tissue down into single cell suspensions and sequence individual cells and really understand what components make up the tumor. Because we know a tumor isn't just cancer. It's the cancer cells. It's subpopulations of the cancer cells. It's um, stroma, so like fibrosis and extracellular matrixes that support the tumor, it's immune cells. And this really allows us to break those down. And, you know, when you standard, you know, right now when we sequence tumors, typically the reports come back saying, oh, nothing was found. But at the end of the day, something's there, right? Something's driving these tumors. And so we need to have the samples ready. So when these new technologies come and we're able to look at them a different way, we're able to find what's there. Because it's not that nothing's there. It's just we're not looking the right way. And with the new technologies, we can do that. So the living library that Dr. Dalvin has, you know, is absolutely a necessity in the future. We're hoping to start a biobank of metastatic tumors um, here shortly and maybe collaborate with some other um, institutions, but that's really what's needed to understand these better and then do exactly what Dr. Dalvin said, which is take the samples, grow them, and then treat them with a bunch of different drugs and try to get an understanding of the 50 new drugs that started in clinical trials this year, which ones look like they work in this disease. And if we can do that in the lab, it's more likely patients will benefit when we bring it to trial. That's a uh... It's like, it's, there's just so much like to unpack there, but generally like just the idea that like, okay, we need the biobanks and if we don't have them, 
we don't have a way of storing the tissue. We don't have a way of looking at it in the future because, I mean, it's one thing to have, I mean, the Castle Biosciences um, diagnosis uh, evaluation test. Mike, I can't can't think of the biopsy. That's the name. Um, the biopsy is, is super helpful because it gives us the information that, you know, that we need for scan protocol for likelihood of metastasis. Um, and then like taking, taking it a, another step forward of, okay, well now we know how likely you are. So if you are in the likelier category, then now we want to be able to say drug A, B, C, and D are going to work well or we, you know, we should, we should frontline these ones. These ones should be for this specific tumor, this specific tumor type, this person, this is the ones that we want to try first. And to have that information kind of, and to be able to pull that as a physician, like that would be invaluable in treating someone. It would, it would take so much of the uncertainty and the question out of what are we going to do when somebody comes to you and they have a new spot on their liver or a spot in their lungs? Um, because there's actually an answer, right? And so I, I love that that's the hope, right? That's the goal is to be able to have some kind of an answer. Is it always going to be right? Like, obviously, no, that's how, that's not how science works. It's not always right. But to have kind of just more answers and more steps in the right direction, I think will be um, really impactful. So I guess let's both touch a little on the registries. Um, what's the difference between a registry and a biobank? Do either of you want to take this? Yeah, I, I can talk about that. So registries, um, you know, registries, we can have people inputting information. So we can input data points like how old were you at diagnosis? What was the size of your tumor? And those can be center-based registries. Those can be patient input registries. So there are lots of different ways to get this type of information versus a biobank. A biobank, we're actually storing biological material. So we're storing blood samples, we're storing ocular fluids, we're storing tumor tissue or living tumor. Um, so, um, registry is going to give us a lot of good potentially population-based data. It's going to tell us what happens over time, um, but a biobank is really what's going to allow us to test drugs or do discovery studies and understand the molecular biology of a tumor or understand can we detect the tumor in a blood sample before we're going to see it on a scan. So I think both of these are critically important. And the ideal scenario is when you have a registry that's married to a biobank so that you have all of the information together. Yeah. So that they're, they're connected, right? It's, it's patient X is also connected to patient X spot in the biobank and they can then look at, okay, what happened over time that potentially led to metastasis and we can find those connections. We can find the answers really. I think that's, that's what it comes down to. Um, well, thank you both of you for just this discussion. I feel like it's been, it's been really neat. Um, and like you guys said, like this, this sector of rare diseases, the more we can talk about it, the more recognition that we can get, the more, um, the more of a stamp we can make, you know, in the world, the bigger, the, uh, um, I guess the growth can be and the faster that growth happens. So, um, just as we close out, I just wanted to just kind of, I'm going to try and find it really quick. Um, I wanted to just point you guys, if you have not already seen this, we do have, um, the faces of ocular melanoma video, and we created this specifically for rare disease day. So please, if you haven't seen that video yet, it's on our page on Facebook, it's across our YouTube. Um, you can look up the faces of ocular melanoma and it has a big old rainbow eye with kind of some zebra stripes on it. And, um, uh, we just are showcasing over a hundred patients who were willing to submit a photo and just, um, make a statement for rare disease day and to, um, to stand with us and I guess for us as patients to, to represent 
just some of the people in our population who are navigating this rare disease and to, you know, call for awareness, call for funding, call for changes in legislation um, that will allow rare diseases to, to be um, able to move forward um, and not just, not just be something that we, we get it and we go, oh my goodness, like there's nothing here for me. Um, we want to be able to offer more hope. And obviously like there's a lot more hope now than there was say 10 years ago. Um, but we still, we want to continue that moving that needle forward. Um, so I guess if you're going to do anything to help us, um, one would be to share the video, share this video, share it with your physicians, share it with other patients. You can share this webinar, but you can also share the faces of ocular melanoma video. Um, schedule your own diagnosed or your own comprehensive uh, dilated eye exam. If you haven't already, obviously most of us are patients. So we probably see an eye doctor like every two to three months sometimes, um, but tell a friend and encourage your friends and family to tell other people because the ripple effect of talking about that and getting um, more ophthalmologists, more optometrists on board with the idea that these exams need to happen on a, a yearly basis at a minimum, uh, I think will it will change the trajectory of what, um, what diagnosis stage looks like for ocular melanoma. And then of course, like support legislation for disease funding, like rare disease funding. I know we have a few people on Capitol Hill today, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's something going on on Capitol Hill and I'm probably botching it, but something in the East coast side, there's, there's a big movement for rare disease day um, to just make a statement um, to the government and to, I guess, all of the people who make the legislation that, that says when something can get approved or not. Um, we want them to to pay attention and to listen. And then the last thing would just be if you are able to contribute a donation or to um, solicit your family and friends for donations for a cure in sight for organizations like us to aid patients, um, make sure that they can travel if needed for treatment and to help us fund research, then that is absolutely invaluable. Um, I guess we only have a couple of minutes left, but we do have time. If, if Do you guys have like five minutes for a question or two? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, um, we have just a couple of questions talking about, I guess, just some random things. So that's okay. Um, but this, this person is asking, does the type of contrast agent make a difference uh, in getting an MRI of the, uh, the abdomen? So I guess this would be more of a Dr. Moser question. Um, I guess in terms of uveal, we know it's small, right? So yeah. when it shows up in metastases, it's very small. There are some small nuances between using gadolinium and EOVIST, which are the two main contrasts. For most people, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is getting the liver-specific protocol, right? Because when we image the liver, the big thing which differentiates a normal thing in the liver versus a cancerous thing in the liver is how the contrast flows through it. So when we do liver MRIs, we always get an image before the contrast, an image when the contrast is supposed to be in the arteries, and an image when it's in the when it's supposed to be in the veins, and then sometimes they'll even get a delayed image. And seeing how the lesion changes throughout that time frame, that's really what's most important. So for most people, either contrast is fine as long as they're getting the multi-phase liver scan. Um, but there are some nuances. I think that's that's a good point. Um, and I know like there there are going to be recommendations for I think kind of the the um, East coast side of things like recommends EOBIST, but like you said, like the, the nuances are small um, and it is possible to detect metastases as long as you have that liver emphasis um, MRI. I think it's more the MRI is kind of more important than like a, you know, a CT versus an MRI is going to have more in-depth imaging. Yeah. MRI is the best way to detect small lesions in the liver. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to check over on Facebook just because I don't want to leave them hanging and make sure that we don't have anything going on question wise. Nope. I don't see any questions over here. Well, um, I want to be respectful of your guys' time. So thank you guys both for being here and thank you everyone who was able to tune in and listen. Like I said, make sure to share this video, tag a friend. Um, and let's just say thank you to Dr. Justin Moser and Dr. Lauren Dalvin for being here with us today on Rare Disease Day. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.